0: welcome
1: to the random podcast
2: with randy
1: and okay. all right welcome back to another episode of the random podcast season two hooray and we have applause look at that pre-recorded applause the best. <laughs> and today we are doing an interview with our good friend Marion chan again Hi. welcome yay Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so, Marion, Chandra and I were, well, we went to med school together many, many moons ago. That's how we've known each other and we've been friends ever since. And though she's a surgeon at the moment, she's got many more strings to her bow. And we thought we would have a chat about all those other strings, as well as how she ended up where she is now, which is a park. On a swing. (laughs) So if you're watching on YouTube, she is currently doing this, sitting on a swing in a park.
2: Hope you don't get too seasick.
1: (laughs) So considering that's the most random point, why are you in a park or sitting on a swing?
2: Well, that's what happens when you've got a 15 monther at home, uh, stuck with hubby. And there is no way in hell she's going to sit still if I'm on my phone for the next 16 minutes <laughs> because all she wants is my phone.
0: <laughs> You've taken Victoria away from her.
1: Yes, and I've got the soundboard, so I will keep on <laughs> playing random sounds instead of having a 15-month-old sound in the background. <laughs> um, all righty. Uh, so as we talked about, Marion's a surgeon. Um Maybe let's start with like the day job stuff. What do you do? What is your subspecialty and how did you end up there?
2: Um, So I'm a plastic plastic surgeon by trade um, and I mainly specialize in breast reconstructive, cosmetic, aesthetics work with a bit of body work such as um, body contouring, Um, tummy tucks and massive weight loss surgeries. So sometimes we end up working on the arms or the thighs, legs, those kinds of areas. Um, I must say that when I first got into plastics, I didn't really anticipate that I would be doing any of this stuff. Um, I guess I fell fell in love with it when I became more exposed to it um, in my final year as a trainee And the more I saw, the more opportunities I got to learn from the experts who did those operations. And then when I first started coming out as a first year plastic surgeon, by luck, a lot of my patients, which I got from my public health appointments, ended up being breast cancer reconstruction patients. And once you start, seeing a couple and operating on a couple then you kind of open the floodgates and that's how I then got into what I'm doing now.
1: (laughs) No fair enough but even going back a step further in med school did you think that a you're going to be a surgeon and b you're going to be a plastic surgeon? No. What, what was the what was the what did you what was the idea when you got into med school like what did you think you're going to end up at and uh, what made you deviate
2: uh, Wanted your job actually Rafi I wanted to be a guest man or guest woman uh, <laughs> I, I worked really hard to try and get myself an early anesthetics position in residency um, oh, as wow. a junior doctor uh but i didn't realize yeah so in order for me to get that uh, that that little rotation that that anesthetics rotation i had to apply for a general year uh and then because it was a general year they basically lumped me in to do all kinds of other covering jobs and they needed a plastics um Resident cover for one rotation, and I did that first, and I actually loved it. I never thought I'd like plastics, and I'd done surgery as an intern, and yeah, you know what, it was all right. But I did really see myself doing it over a long period of time. It was full of men in the specialty, and I felt like I couldn't balance surgical surgeon life with having a family, and having a family was something very important to me. So I really didn't want to risk it at that point in time. So I did my general year. I did my plastics job and I loved it but didn't like it enough for me to actually want to do it long-term. And then I did anaesthetics, which I also did love. However, I remembered one particular day when I was helping put a patient to sleep uh, for a general surgeon and this patient was having just a simple lipoma taken out from the back and he had left the room to let the registrar do the operation. And, oh, God, it was the most awful thing. I stood there watching this guy try to take out a lipoma from someone's back for about half an hour to the point where I was like, I, I didn't say it, but this is what my, my inside voice said. Um, can I just do it for you? Because you're taking a long time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and, just, and for all... those, just for those listening, maybe just explain what a lipoma is.
2: So a lipoma is basically a little uh, non-cancerous fat lump. Uh, That can occur uh, anywhere in the body, but typically around the trunk. So, the abdomen, the chest, and the back areas, you can get them on the limbs as well, sometimes in the head and neck areas. And they are generally, uh, in most cases, non cancerous. And you yeah, I was basically there watching this guy trying to take out something that was really, really quite simple and minor and it was just taking an absolute long time and there I thought to myself all I wanted to do was reach over the green drapes and actually do the silly operation myself um, but I couldn't and I just had to sit there and I just had to wait. Oh, and wow. At that point, I then also realised my time is totally dependent On that guy's time.
1: (laughs) I believe in what you were saying last week when we we were operating. Absolutely.
2: I can't go home until you're done. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's it's really. okay with that <laughs> <laughs> So I think it's, this is like the really interesting thing You and I have had like literally the opposite experiences Because I thought I was, was going to be a surgeon Ever through, through most of med school And only near yeah. the end did I switch Because um, I was on a surgical ward round as an intern And I was kind of like I'd done a bit of anesthetics I liked it sort of 99% as much But surgery still had like Got me the tunnel vision and everything But like you, I was like oh, If I do that I could see myself getting so obsessed that I wouldn't want to do anything else.
2: Yeah. And
1: yeah, like basically at the end of, uh, I think you might've been there. This was at uh, Eastern Health, when we were both working there. Uh, We had like a guy, it was like a recess situation and just so happened to be that on that day, my patient had a code blue. And whilst they were recessing this guy who was not, for going back to theater, there was another code blue, and they had to run off. So I had to sit there and ventilate this guy um, with like a little bag mask thing with, that was intubated. And uh the wife came in and said oh, he didn't want, she didn't want any further resuscitation. So I had to extubate and basically, you know, I just remember going, "What am I about to do next? Is directly going to kill someone?" But that was also the correct thing to do. And the surgical registrar I was with was just standing in the doorway and didn't know what else to do so it was just left to me and i was very junior at the time and i just remember going huh you know in the future i would like to be standing here but knowing what to do versus over there not knowing what to do in this situation it's kind of like the exact you know yeah so that's how
0: (laughs) and there's also the third option for people listening Find a nice specialty like ophthalmology. (laughs) (laughs) I would just like to put that out there. Oh, you mean uh, where where
2: you don't need to know what to do? Is that what you mean? (laughs)
0: Correct. If something's wrong, you're probably the most useless person in the room.
1: (laughs) I think Chandran was saying, what was the the case in the UK during the COVID outbreak with Ophthalm? Yeah, well,
0: um, one of my friends, he was recruited to the ICU. as a. He was there on ophthalmology, but uh, because the UK was recruiting... All of the ophthalmologists, oh, everybody in the hospital to help in intensive care. He was in ICU as well for the first time. He was very excited because he was like, oh, I'm writing like these orders for drugs. Oh, it's very exciting. Um, and then the second time they got recruited, ophthalmology was excluded as a craft specialty. <laughs> I believe we were so <laughs> used to that they, we weren't invited back despite medical um, shortages. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> um but yes though interestingly you said that uh yeah you were worried about surgical not making family life possible but uh you're doing surgery and uh, you're at the park (laughs) (laughs)
2: yes (laughs) i guess it does require a degree of persistence and i do feel that To some certain extent, I count myself lucky and blessed because I got onto the surgical training program at the time that I did. Not everyone um, might be as lucky or as fortunate as I may have had. Um, During my training, I got on when I was fairly junior and young um, for my number of years out after finishing med school. And I did actually, uh, what was it, a couple of years of general surgery specialty training before hopping onto the plastic surgery training program, and each training program more or less would take around five years or so, give or take, depending on what specialty you choose in surgery. And so I did two years of the general surgery and then went on to five years of plastics, but not everybody would be able to get straight onto a training program that early. And I do know some friends of mine who've, Been floating around doing other jobs within plastic surgery but not actually on the program for many years and by many years I mean five plus years and they're still not on the training program and until they have finished the training program they sort of can't call themselves a fully qualified surgeon and actually start working and I certainly would have been very hesitant to start a family without having finished my training my formal training because it can be horribly stressful not knowing exactly what job you've got next year, not having that financial security. And so I certainly didn't have um, our little one until I've fully been qualified for a little while. And the exams. Um, and that's been a blessing. Yeah, the exams were terrible.
1: Yeah, none <laughs> of these specialty really the exams a are fun.
2: <laughs> no, and... And just during training as well, the hours are long. Um, I mean, I never met – I didn't meet hubby during my training. I met him towards the very last year of my training. Uh, But certainly he would say to me now that I work occasionally long hours, but he didn't really see the way I used to work back in my training days and it was (laughs) a little bit murderous at times. And I certainly uh, don't envy my colleagues back then who were training with me who had little kids at home because it would not have been a fun time. Uh,
1: when you when you decided to do surgery, was was it always plastics, nothing else, no other specialty?
2: Actually correct. I didn't really want to do any other type of surgery. I would have been happy to do general surgery at the time, but I didn't love it as much. It, it definitely wasn't my passion.
1: Okay. What
0: and was it specifically about plastics though that made you want to risk that you know potential maybe you would be one of those people hanging around kind of thing or career gets delayed etc but it was still yeah. obvious you decided it's worth the risk
2: yeah the, the risk was actually in the fact that i didn't want to live the rest of my life doing anesthetics and then regretting it when i sit down in 10 years time in front of a green drape and go i wish i had <laughs> given it a go so i i actually kept my contacts up with the anesthetics side of things during the time that I was attempting to get onto the plastic program and my backup plan was if it didn't work out then I try somehow to go back to anesthetics that was going to be my backup
1: yeah that would have worked out because um, I I'd know from a couple of the training programs that uh, anesthetics likes a bit of variety and especially because you need to know what's going on the other side of the drapes. Otherwise it doesn't like you just miss time things and things are just not right. So uh, actually it would have worked out if anyone's listening, trying to contemplate, you can do a bit of surgery. And it actually works out in your favor in uh, team anesthesia, talking to a few people who actually do uh, do the interviews and whatnot. Um, Just in terms of, the plastic side of things and getting on and finishing so it seems like you know that was a fortunate, and obviously you're also very skilled I mean obviously you really like plastics and that probably helped you getting onto the training program now sitting where you are not literally at the park do you appreciate the decision regret the decision would have done anything differently and how are you finding the whole work-life family balance
2: I really appreciate where I've gotten so far and especially since I've always been the type of person to try to do what I value and what I love rather than to try and impress somebody else or have some ulterior motive in doing something. So every step along the way, I felt that whatever decision I made had to really be true to my own heart and I had to really be passionate about it in order for me to do a great job. For example, before I got into the training program, like I mentioned, I did a couple of years of general surgery those two years were very, very difficult uh, two years of my life because I had to exert probably 10 times the amount of effort into doing something well um, than I would otherwise doing something I'm passionate about. So it's easier Mm. to do a good job in something that you absolutely love compared to something that you don't have such a good passion in. I mean, I still liked it, but I wasn't passionate about it. And Mm. I really enjoy the type of patients that I see these days. So as you know, in different specialties of medicine, you get different varieties of patients and personalities. And although sometimes we do see patients with very challenging personalities in all specialties and especially in some of my cosmetic practice, I do enjoy the challenge of the different bodies that they present themselves with and the different things and priorities that they want to achieve. Um, And everyone feels so differently about how they want themselves to look. And I feel as a plastic surgeon, it's easy to fall into a trap of trying to give someone you know the same set of boobs or the same looking tummy but at the end of the day I've really got to listen to what the patient's concerns are Um, because patient A's concern may not necessarily be the same as patient B's concern but they want the same operation but they actually want slightly different results for this for very different reasons and It's almost, there's a little bit of underlying psychology under that as well. And I find it really interesting having to delve into those kinds of issues before we launch straight into dealing with it surgically. Um, And not only that, but I feel that plastic surgery offers a side of finesse to it because we are very, I mean, all surgeons are meticulous, but we are dealing with a little bit more of an art form here where we've got to make something look good as well as remain functional too. And that really does match my personality because I've always been a bit (laughs) (laughs) arty-farty.
1: I I was Um, just going to say in terms of your patients, like I'm just going back to like I anesthetized for Marion. I just remember one of our patients was very anxious and uh, very, very anxious. And the moment you stepped into the room, it was, and she I think literally said, oh, my God, is that you, Marion? And uh, you could (laughs) see the anxiety levels drop, uh, you know. And I mean, I think I was trying to do a cannula, uh, put in the IV drip. And I think if you hadn't arrived at that point, it just wouldn't have worked. Um, Oh,
2: that's lovely. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So do you find like, you know, obviously plastics is probably the more, one of the more um, aesthetic kind of specialties. Like you you do get to actually practice something creative. Uh, Would you say, you know, surgeons don't have the stereotype of always being the most focused on communication, I think that falls to more physicians and, like, that's the stereotype, right? Psych and physicians are more the, the clinic-focused, a lot of the communication stuff. Surgery is a bit more doing and you're just kind of trying to get to what the problem is. But would you say that for you in plastics, the appeal of that is that it is the mix or do you prefer one side over the other? Or
2: I guess every plastic surgeon would probably answer this question very differently. Of course. Um, And I feel for me, I might be more of a talker than some and possibly because I enjoy that part of my practice as much as the surgical side. But I do feel the more I get to know a patient before they commit to surgery, the safer they feel, the safer I feel in terms of my ability to look after them and give them the best outcome as possible. But the better recovery and the better surgical journey they're going to have with us purely because we've established a good rapport at the start knowing exactly what our priorities are and what it is that I'm trying to do for each and individual patient. Um, I also want to make sure that I am aware of what their fears are before we do anything because that's really important in terms of looking after them as a patient as a whole. And I do really enjoy that. And I guess that also comes into practice with all the breast cancer patients that I would treat to. Yeah. And they've they've just, you know, they, they've their lives have just been completely turned upside down. And they often come to me in the very early stages of their diagnosis because a lot of breast cancers these days are able to be reconstructed immediately. And so by the time they're walking through the door, they've only just probably received the diagnosis maybe a few days ago. And they have a very limited capacity to listen, absorb information and make an informed decision all in a very short period of time in order to satisfy, um, you know, the criteria, the category of being uh, being required to have their cancer re- resected in a short period of time immediately after that consultation. So I think it's very important for me to be able to communicate with them in that fashion. And that's why I also like to see my patients twice before big surgeries like that because they never absorb much in their first consultation. So it yeah. often requires a couple of goes to make sure yeah. they understand everything. And I think talking is very important
1: yeah well I mean I think this is like the reason I asked was (laughs) there's like for people getting into specialties I I feel like there's always the stereotype and everyone feels like that's how their life's going to be like you know anesthesia gets sold as the lifestyle specialty and uh, I just like the little story that I had from years ago was I was um, it was like three o'clock in the morning and I got a phone call from one of the residents asking me to go put in a drip and I was like look I'm Bit stuck. Uh, Can you ask your registrar? It's like, oh, no, no. My registrar can't do anything. Uh, They're in theater. And I was like, if your registrar is in theater and operating, where do you think I am? (laughs) right so it gets sold as a lifestyle specialty But it's like how how, you know you can't possibly be operating unless you have the anesthetist around as well right but it's like vice versa whereas um there's a vascular surgeon i know actually we both know uh who's very into photography and he's got like a really good work-life balance and there's all these stereotypes like you know if you if you like talking you shouldn't do surgery but it's not necessarily true you can actually craft it the way like you know once you finish you can Take it and make it into whatever you actually want it to do. So there is actually flexibility rather than it being this rigid path that's uh got it for you. I think that's the thing with med. It's like it's a re- it's like a train track and then it suddenly ends. And then you yes. get to design it or you get to just rebuild it and keep going straight, right? And yeah. I think that's sometimes lost on people, um, especially during the long training programs, because you've got it just feels like a treadmill that you have to keep going on.
2: Yes, no, it's I definitely I agree with that.
1: To- I do want to ask you
0: about that, like in terms of the variety aspect of things that you mentioned, that you see a huge different variety of types of patients because I imagine, for example, the cosmetic patients will be very different to the cancer patients and all the different types of operations you do, there's a massive variety as well. And the way that you said, you know, you have to see what's important for one patient versus the other. Is that Mm. something deliberately by design that you've actually tried to keep your job varied? or... Is that something that's just happened? Uh, I ask that because, for example, in ophthalmology as well, we have a similar thing where, you know, you can really niche, you can subspecialize your way into, you know, I just do the left half of the front part yeah. of the eye only. Um, wow. Well,
2: I'm going to try that next. I'm going to be like, I only do the left boob, not the right, exactly. just the
1: left. Just the left. I'm a left specialist. I, I'm going to only anethatise uh, the right little finger. That's it. Yeah. If you need a general no. anaesthetic, that's out. No, Only this finger.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, look, I, I think that to some certain extent I have chosen my patients subconsciously. Maybe that's not such a right word. Um, most surgeons these days would have some kind of marketing in place. Would you agree? Yeah, most it's definitely surgeons? becoming more of a thing. Yeah, um, it is. And a lot of patients these days would rely heavily on social media, website, Google searches. Forums, Facebook forums. This is a new thing mm-hmm. these days. Before uh. choosing their own surgeon, so it would then be safe to assume that if you were a patient seeking out a surgeon for cosmetic surgery, for example, that you would have trolled through their whole entire social media profile before deciding that, yep, I'm going to call them and make an appointment. And mind you, most patients probably wouldn't call for appointment these days because a lot more um, people are now preferring to actually submit online requests, um, emails rather than physically pick up the phone and call. Whereas I find it easy to just call because it's easier just to call. Anyway, beside that point.
1: That's because I, we're old Naz. That's because we're old
2: <laughs> <Thanks>.
1: <laughs> We I, remember I think, we we had rotary phones back in the day.
2: <laughs> oh, I used to love those phones. This paper then. so on my social profile, I would tend to post people's before and after results that um, reflect the type of practice that I run and hence the type of patients that I see. And the more of those things that you post, the more you attract. And so inadvertently, I've made my own patient selection through how I do my own marketing, because this is the bulk of the patients that I see. And the more you see, the more comes through the door. And, and the more that I comes through the door, the more you post and the more same people see and so on and so forth. It's a vicious cycle. And I mean, it's not vicious because I like it. And they're, they're great patients to treat and they're lovely. Um, so I do believe that there is a degree of
1: selection. Yeah. It sounds like it's also very satisfying for you.
2: Yeah, yeah. These these people that I see can be quite debilitated, even in the cosmetic population. I mean, you, you would naturally assume that a breast cancer patient is not in the best frame of mind because they're battling with cancer and that's all completely understandable and they often come in quite shocked and sad and stressed about the whole situation. But um, just to give you an idea, I've seen a purely cosmetic patient recently who has lost a lot of weight um, because she used to be overweight and she's lost maybe about 60, 70 kilos um, and because of the degree of loose skin that she's now got and where her breasts are sitting at the moment from all the weight loss, she's so embarrassed that it's completely disrupted her um, self-confidence and hence her feeling of the relationship that she has with her partner. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how supportive the partner is at times, it doesn't necessarily stop the the woman from feeling inadequate and as silly as that sounds because you would sometimes in the community just say well you just need to um you're fine you know you look great the way you are and it doesn't matter how much you feel loved um the way you see yourself and the way that you feel about your own appearance can be so debilitating to some people at times that even the cosmetic patients come in very upset with the way that they look um yeah. and it's great to be able to help them
1: random interlude yeah well i mean it's kind of like everything you know cosmetics seems to get this uh connotation that it's uh just for looks whereas it does have a huge impact on the people coming through the door. Um, We've talked a lot about the medical stuff. So we wanted to jump into the other things that you do outside of it, because whilst this takes up a huge part of it, you actually have many, many bows, um, uh, many, many strings to your bow, I should say. And I just, so I think we were briefly talking about this before we started the recording. I just remember in medical school was one of my birthdays and you baked this amazing cake. Um,
2: <laughs> and
1: it was like better than Stirlport and I remember you on that specific day going yeah all I ever wanted to be was a baker or a chef so on that regard you've kind of failed miserably
2: <laughs> Yeah, totally absolutely failed yep yep
1: yeah so before that like you've still continued baking right like uh, where did that come from and are you still doing things with it
2: I am still baking um, I don't I don't go out of my way to advertise to sort of the wider public that I'm baking. I don't run well, a cake shop. Well, you heard but- it
1: here first. <laughs> cake shop is going live. Just look out for the Instagram and social media posts. <laughs> there
2: will even always be a coupon to-
1: code from the
0: podcast listeners.
1: Yes. <laughs> Brand in <laughs> 10 for 10% off. Yeah. Um- sure.
2: I'd always, always uh, imagine that I would uh, run a cake shop once I retire or something. It's been one of my long standing dreams and I'd love to be able to do that. Uh, it takes a lot of work for me to be able to deliver the kind of cake that I feel is impressive enough to give to someone. And your cakes are just amazing, order- by the
1: way.
2: <laughs> oh, thank you. But I think. There's a lot of effort that requires in terms of the baking process and then the storage and then keeping the equipment in the house. And, you know, with a 15-month-old running around at the moment, it's almost borderline impossible to decorate a cake without a babysitter. So actually come come to think of it, I recently did one for a um, 40th birthday for someone just around Australia daytime. And I actually had to hire a babysitter for three hours so I could ice the cake properly. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, and just to make sure that she didn't touch the flowers, for example, because the flowers these days are sprayed with a lot of in, uh, pesticides and things and you have to wire them individually and then take them in the individually before you can insert them into the icing. Um, and I just really didn't want the little one running around, grabbing the flower petals, destroying the flower petals and then shoving fingers in her mouth, just little things um, because it just takes a long time for you to do that. And it's just hard with a little one running
1: around. So
2: and for those
1: listening, you don't sound yeah, meticulous well, at all. No, no, it's just a haphazard baking thing. All your yeah, ones, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I, I can
0: see a common thread there of uh, very meticulous artistic work.
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so yeah, See, I haven't actually yeah. failed. <laughs> yeah, and I came to Australia um, back in 1996 when I was 12 years old. Oh, same. and. I was 10. But. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. um, we never had an oven back at home where I came from in Hong Kong with my parents. And baking was something that I only ever saw in cartoons. So when I first came ah. here and I had a little sleepover at my friend's house when I was near six, we baked cakes. Um and I was just mesmerized by the whole process and never done it before. And so immediately I learned how to do it. I kept reading recipes. I did my own research since I was about 12 years old and that's how I kind of got started. Yeah. Nice. And cake making industry has changed a lot. Like I went from back then when I learned how to bake cakes, the the way you decorate cakes back then used to be, you know, two sponge cakes and layer it with some kind of, frosting or cream. And then you really had two choices. Either you just cover the hell of the cake up with frosting or whipped cream and then pipe little rosettes on top and then decorate it with cherries and strawberries and fruits or whatever and do some cool chocolate design on it that you kind of have to just sit and then stick on the cake the alternative was like your wedding cake or celebratory cake where you just cover the whole thing with disgusting sweet marzipan or fondant (laughs) and these days it's totally moved away from that it's gone into this sort of watercolor art form of buttercream frosting that is like rendered it, it, it imagine imagine like these houses behind me with like a rounded um exterior that, that's what your cake looks like these days it's like completely right. smooth on the outside you could probably just like lean on it and it would still not fall over <laughs> it's it's a totally different look and i didn't truly realize that until quite recently
1: oh so you're talking did to you two people sort of learning that though
2: yeah Okay. go <laughs>
0: <laughs> how did you actually go about learning all that though
2: um well in recent times I've done again a a short burst of more cake decorating research and I actually have found that there is a new style of cakes these days so if you walk into any wedding cake shop you'll see that their cakes are mostly frosted with buttercream icing and Essentially, you've got layers of cake on the inside and then you smother buttercream icing all over them and then you use a scraper and you scrape it until it's smooth as baby's bum. Um, and if you smooth it any further, it turns into a naked cake, which is you smooth it too much and then a bit of that sponge cake shows through. That's what a naked cake is. Uh, I paid, I paid, I don't know what it was, nearly $1,000 for my wedding cake that uh, that was May last year. And come to think of it, I should have just made it myself. It really wouldn't have cost $1,000. <laughs>
1: So you're talking <laughs> to two really... people who know nothing yep. about baking, but I was like, I'm glad you've done the <laughs> research because this means the next cake you bake, yeah, I'll be there. Uh- <laughs> we'll learn to take delivery.
0: And did you ever sort of do
1: like a formal
0: course or anything, or is it just things that no. you self taught? And what does your research process even look like for that?
2: YouTube helps a lot these days. Um, <laughs> It, well, in the past it used to be physical recipe books because YouTube was not a thing back then. But more uh-huh. recently you kind of just follow the trend on what cake making looks like and then you find out from Pinterest and Instagram accounts what kind of icing they're using and then once you you know what kind of icing they're using, you just Google buttercream icing decoration and then all these hits come up and people more or less do it the same way. Um, and then once you know how to do the basic of icing a cake, you can then start to put food coloring and make really cool designs. And then once you know how to do some really cool techniques using particular methods, then you can just use your imagination. Actually pretty cool.
1: <laughs> on, on a random note in terms of just like you know you're saying that you're using youtube for research we had a listener reach out like we did this episode where chandra was talking about how bananas ripen other fruits around it um which i knew nothing sorry, about can you this say was- that
2: again I, my ear- can, can you just say that again sorry my earpods just fell out what was that
1: oh uh, good uh, no we're just talking about this random side fact where um you know how you're saying you're learning through youtube Yep. Uh, we had a listener call, a uh, message going uh, Chandra was talking about boats a few episodes ago Where supposedly you can't take bananas onto a boat Because it releases mm. some certain gas Where it ripens another fruit around it And she was saying, yeah, I learned that from your podcast I've used it to ripen all this other fruit That just was taking too long <laughs> So I feel like wow. there's like, you know Yeah, I had no idea This is like Chandra's kind of,
2: Is that why yeah, all because, the apricots uh, Is that all why all the apricots sitting next to my bananas Are all going off? Pretty
1: much. Yeah. Ah, there you go. Thanks. Hey, our podcast you is educational. Our great. podcast is That's educational.
0: Great. Yay. Uh, but um, so, with that learning, it's kind of interesting because our YouTube learning is crosses over to a little bit of surgical world, too, surgical videos. But it sounds like you've got a few other things that you do as well on the artistic side. Can you tell us about some of the other things that you do as well?
2: Yeah, so I'm heavily into the gym and I also do ballroom dancing in my spare time.
0: Hmm.
2: I've been dancing now for over 10 years. Uh, Well, I guess ballroom dancing for over 10 years, but prior to that I did a lot of um, ballet, tap, jazz, thing back in high school on and off. And I got into ballroom dancing when I was what was it? I was a second year, third year resident, and uh-huh. I really felt like doing a type of dancing that was. This sounds really quirky. That required a teamwork approach. So okay, I was no, never gonna. <laughs> I was never gonna get good enough in ballet to you know join the whatever academy victorian academy of ballet or the whatever I don't know what they're called um in order to get myself a male ballet partner to go dance on stage or something because I'm not a professional ballerina um and I was never built for that anyway but I wanted to join a sport where I would actually need to work towards a common goal with another person and I didn't go into it with the idea that I would compete initially i just went into it with the idea that i wanted to learn how to do it and it sounded like a pretty cool idea and obviously i didn't go in having a partner already i went in just having solo lessons with a single male teacher and i just fell in love with it and i just got completely hooked essentially and i could not stop i still can't stop
1: what made you actually like, as in, so before all this, the other thing we're going to talk about is your musical career, where, you know, uh, you used to do a lot of music, but then you got into dancing. Like, what made mm. you kind of even look that way? Like, there's 101 other sports out there, um, but what yeah. specifically made you go dancing?
2: Uh, I mean, dancing's always been an important thing in my life. Um, music has been a long standing thing in my life, but it it basically wore itself out when I tried to. Um. actually, it wore itself out when I finished my last licentiate exams that I believe you might have even come to. I yeah,
1: think I, think I, I think I did. I think we to concept. We, I think a whole yeah. bunch
2: of us did. Yeah, You did. And I set yeah. that final exam and there was no further exams to sit. And I think it was just one of my neurotic personalities where I'm like, I need to get the highest qualification possible. And now <laughs> that I've got the highest qualification in my flute exams, well, what else is there to do? I can do performances. But, well, I can join an orchestra, so I joined the doctor's orchestra and there was, uh, I probably shouldn't say this in the podcast, but I met someone there who was really uh, very full of himself and I didn't wish to go back. I shall not say who or whether or not I sat next to them. I mean, that's probably a bit too far. Um, (laughs) But, so it basically made me stop wanting to go and made me stop wanting to play. And on and off I, gone.
1: Oh, no, I was going to say, it sounds like with the dancing, you really love it and you're doing it for its own sake. Was the flute different?
2: The flute was, I, that was my passion and it gave me satisfaction that I was able to achieve as much as I did at the time. But dancing gave me the same thing and fitness.
1: And I'd, right, always so been
2: a, it, I'd always been a fat kid when I was young. And I'd always hated sports. I'd always done everything in my power to get out of phys ed at school, including, you know, parents writing me letters to tell teachers that I can't do sports for whatever X, Y, Z reason it is of the week.
1: I just couldn't do it. it. I'm still the fat kid. I'd schedule
2: schedule theory (laughs) lessons, 10 times whatever music lessons in the middle of sports class just to get out of sports class. Oh, my And so when I actually started dancing, it required a certain level of stamina and physical, um, I guess, finesse to it that I never had. And the more I did it, the more fit it made me become. And I realised it gave me a health benefit that I never had in my life. And that was probably the second reason why it was so addictive. That I'm so passionate about
0: it. Do you ever sort of considered doing it on a non-competitive basis? Because um, it's an interesting one. Like I know, for example, with photography, uh, for me personally, I've deliberately kept it as a non-professional thing Um because I did do sort of you know wedding photography, for example, for a little bit oh, professionally, but it just sort of <laughs> turned it less fun. <laughs> kind of really yeah. sucked some of the fun out of it. And so still up, you oh. know, that one.
2: Our website is <laughs> still up. So
0: that's
2: that's a very interesting question because when I first started dancing, it was non-competitive, obviously, because I was only learning from one teacher. But as I became better, um, I then wanted more. And so I wanted to be in that competition mode because I got to wear pretty dresses. I got to rank myself amongst other people, which is always exciting. Get that bit of adrenaline rush um, without actually doing an adrenaline sports and risk yourself of dying. Um, and it was fun until it got really hands, toxic. More importantly. Yes, exactly. Although I have stacked it a few times on my oh. hand and yeah, I actually think I've done something to it in the past, but anyway, oh. I'm good now. Um, okay. And then until it was good until it got really toxic and then it became more of an addiction. And I actually am doing it now with an old friend and teacher of mine. We learned from a professional coach. Who Mm. is one of the best in the country? And we're very blessed to have him um, teaching in our hometown, Melbourne. Um, He's really one of the best teachers I've ever had. Um, And I'm blessed enough to be able to dance with a friend and also a pro teacher um, who can do a hell of a lot. And that means that I can actually have one lesson with this other guy, um, who's really, 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 really good. And then utilize that information during the week and train with this mate of mine who happens to be a really high level pro dancer as well. And I'm not competing, but it allows me to, um, realize my passion and continue on doing the things I love with dancing, uh, continue to challenge my fitness, um, which is even better than just having one lesson a week because if you just have one lesson a week, you, you take the information away after your 45-minute lesson or an hour lesson if you can manage to find an hour and you don't get right. to apply it, which, which is what sucks about dancing with a partner is you need a partner. Otherwise, you'll be paying for you know four lessons a week to try and get the same amount of training to match your fitness challenge and to... Um, Make your brain work whilst you're dancing, and, and that can number one get really expensive, and number two, teachers just don't have that kind of time to give you to give you four lessons a week.
1: So oh. it just doesn't work. In terms of the, the dancing, right? So it, it sounds like just uh, picking up your uh, flute career and this. If if someone took away any further progress in dancing, do you think you'd be still as interested in it? Like, would you just do it at the current level? Like, it, does that make sense? Because it seems like you're very much motivated towards improving yourself, whether it be in your plastics, you know, the sort of patients you're going for are what I would consider or some people would consider like the challenging ones, right? Like there's always this, you're you're trying to stress yourself and get a bit better. But I wonder if you, are you, like how much of it is the fact that there is this essentially infinite possibility of uh, progress, uh, where it sounds like the whole flute career thing, you kind of reached the ceiling and you couldn't see, like it wasn't going to be that much more challenging for you how much of what you do is driven by the challenge of it versus just i don't know just dancing for the sake of dancing
2: i think (laughs) percent is based on the fact that i need to do this because there is room for improvement and so there is a bit of a mentality that i am not i'm not good enough and i can make myself better and that's what is so attractive about this process
1: but is it do, do you have to get better at it like as in if like you're good enough implies that you know there's a ranking scale and it's going to materially change something if you become good enough right like what's your yes, marker for-, for
2: for good enough yeah no that's that's a very very solid question so previously when I was competing how I judge myself as being good enough was getting the rank or placing first, second, third in whatever category I decided to go for. But I realized then that's fraud because maybe we're having a bad day. Maybe I've just had a fight with my dance partner, or maybe I woke up tired or woke up on the wrong side of the bed, or maybe the the panel was stacked and we just didn't get the results that we wanted because the judges favored another couple. And it happens that that couple had learned from, you know, five other judges on the panel, which happens. But, these days I judge whether or not I'm improving by how well me and my current teacher partner Shane is actually dancing. and that changes week by week. so we are both progressing as a couple in order to like um, in, in order to actually do a physical step better week after week, and also on a personal level, there were steps I couldn't do, for example, six months ago that I can do now, which is really amazing. Okay, and so, so it's, actually, it's actually, I couldn't do this six months ago, but I can now. It's that kind of a conversation. So it's really rewarding.
1: So it sounds like it's changed from like this external competition to just the, the thrill of increasing your ability. Would that be right to say?
2: Absolutely, yes. Okay. And that's what I'd always liked in dancing
1: yeah now and doing that, competition
2: just takes that away
1: <laughs> sometimes fair <laughs> enough fair enough so is there something that you do currently that doesn't improve require improvement like as in because all the things we've talked about so far right like where it's baking you go and you learn the new techniques and whatnot is there something that you do that doesn't require that progression or that next level that you just enjoy the process like uh um, I'll give you an example right for for whatever reason it's not all the time because nine times the time I hate it but I really like tidying up and putting stuff away right? Like there's something very zen and meditating do about that. Do you want to
2: come visit us? <laughs> do you want to come visit us? We could do with some help.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it, like, does that make sense though? Like, you know, it, it's like the simple, uh, actually the other one that like my mom pointed out to me was uh, uh have like a investment property and it just needed a bit of paint work. And I know nothing about painting houses. I don't know anything about DIY. So I just bought random rollers and the electricity was off and it was hot and I hate the heat and I just started painting right and my mom was just giving me a hand and she was just like yeah when you're doing it you just look so zen uh like you're just at peace just doing it I was like yeah there's something about the repetitive nature of it that is just these random things that I like I would never have thought I'd enjoyed it but I did it felt like uh it took way longer because I didn't know what I was doing it would have been far easier and cheaper just to get someone else to do it but To this day, I really go, yeah, that was just like, it felt like this weird long holiday. Is there anything like that where there's no progression? There's like, it's just rolling paintball, like tidying up. It's always going to get messy. There's no way you can tidy up better. Mm. Is there things like that that you have? Like those are just some weird bizarre examples, but yeah.
2: Yeah, look, I do have a bizarre example, but unfortunately it's a hobby that can't be done all the time. And especially in Melbourne, I just wouldn't attempt it. I scuba dive. I love scuba diving. Yeah? Yeah. Love scuba diving. So I just, you know, as soon as you hop in the water, it's just like this whole entire magical world down there. And I just remembered one sharks. time in Maldives. With sharks. And actually. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling.
0: It's amazing, right? Yeah. It's like you're in a yeah, different world. It, just,
2: it is. I, I remember this particular dive in the Maldives where it was a cleaning station for manta rays. And these were like giant oceanic manta rays. And you just hopped in and we were only maybe about 12 metres down, not even that deep. And you just kneeled on the ground and just looked up and there were these giant creatures soaring above your head. And not a thing in the world could have really bothered me at that point in time. I really didn't care about anything else in the world at that point in time. Mm. Probably couldn't have cared if I died right then because I would have died wow. happy. <laughs> yeah, I have that
0: feeling when you're kind of like under the water and looking around, the other <laughs> things uh, kind of seem a lot less important because
2: you're yeah. in this other world. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's one thing to see it in photos or videos, but these these creatures are just majestic.
1: It sounds yeah. kind of like, um, you know, like if you look at what the astronauts say about the overview effect, where you're looking at the planet and they get this weird appreciation, it's like the underwater effect is somewhat similar. It's like a very yeah. different version of the world, but you get that same thing where it's so different <laughs> that you can't help but... Yeah, I've, I'm have i kind of afraid of deep water, so I haven't ever done skewer driving, but I'll get around <laughs> to it at some point because too many people have said too many good things about it.
2: Yeah, it's great. Just don't do it in Melbourne because it's freezing. And the only way you can hop <laughs> in the water in Melbourne is with like a 9 millimeter wetsuit, and even then it's still freezing to the point where I couldn't breathe. Um, so you <sighs> need a semi-dry suit or a dry suit, which just makes you look fat. Um, and you, channel- I got that covered kick around the water with this fat suit on. It's just not great. Just not great.
1: That's why I'm going to take up sumo <laughs> wrestling.
0: If you build up enough blubber layer, maybe you'll be right.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So in terms of uh just tying it all together, because it seems like, you know, if we had to pick a common thread, you're intensely driven by self-improvement and you love creative things. And it's slowly moving towards just challenging yourself more and more. Right. Like that seems to be if we had to. Would that be an accurate representation of how what brought you?
2: I've never heard someone put it in those terms ever before in my life, but that's very accurate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I like, unless like, you have something else, like in terms of tying that together, that's how I would do it.
0: No, you sort of balance that side between artistic pursuits where you can see objective improvements seems to be a common thing where you can challenge yourself and keep improving, yet it's still in artistic pursuits because even surgical, like plastics is an artistic pursuit, right? There's no, you can still show yourself getting better, but it's not just a pure sort of, you know, this is the exact steps that you do every time.
2: That's
1: right. Yep. Yep. So, just a couple of things like tying it together before we move on to the more random question that uh, Randint is all famous for amongst the 30 listeners or so. <laughs> um, is do you find that, you know, it, we've asked this for other people that were medical on there where it's, um, that if you have outside interests in medicine, it's seen as a negative. Do you find that's still the case or it doesn't really matter to you anymore?
2: Uh, Look, it doesn't matter to me as much now because I'm a boss. Sorry, that's noisy motorcycle driving past the park.
1: No Scaring all the kids. Good.
2: Um yeah, so it's not You're so involved. it's not so bad now. <laughs> I'm um it, it's not so bad now that I'm a consultant and supervising trainees myself and I actually try to instill in these new trainees that it's okay to want to do something outside of work and it's okay if you want to leave work on time provided you've done everything that you need to do. And it's all right to hand over to the next person on duty to finish the work that you've started, provided there is a safe Patient care um, handover process going on because you need that outlet, and it's easy to become trapped in a world of work where you just wake up, go to work, go home, sleep, wake up, go to work, go home, and sleep. And it really takes a toll on your mental health, and in a not great way, it makes you less likely to be copic later on in your career as well. And I certainly had been through times where I felt judged by my supervisors of training back in the days that I was a junior doctor to the point where I had one person say to me, Oh, you do that outside of, you do dancing outside of, um, of work. Do you? Oh, well, I guess it's good that you do it now because, you know, eventually you'll have to stop because something has to give. That was wow. the exact sentence. Something has to give. And I go, well, no, it really doesn't. And I can't believe you just said that to me because in my mind, well, yeah, something has to give. And in your world, that might cost that might have cost you your relationship, for example. And I had the same discussion with Hubby yesterday because it's taken us fifteen months, because that's how old our little one is, to get our schedules under control. Um, I mean it was difficult when she was just born and when she's this tiny little thing that you've got to feed every hour um then really i've got to be home and do it because you know if you're breastfeeding you kind of need to stay home and breastfeed the child unless you give them bottles and then maybe you can take it in turns but she wasn't for, for a long time but at this point hubby and i actually take turns to leave the house and have a bit of a good time and so he actually teaches dancing um on a monday night and wednesday night is my turn to go out training with shane um, i have my lessons um The both of us have lessons with this pro uh, teacher on a morning time after I've dropped the little one off to daycare. And then on Sunday at the moment, um, Hubby and I are both teaching a class together on a Sunday night. Um, We actually get a babysitter around to do that teaching. Um, And that's worked really well for us because we're able to get out of the house and actually have a bit of me time and it's important to be able to fill your cup and i think it's necessary for mental health to do that in every specialty not just surgeons but in every other medical specialty or even in other jobs and with it's interesting too because it's i've realized that with covid over the last 2 years doctors have been lucky enough to still be able to leave the home and have mm. human interaction to see other yeah. people but so many other non-medical specialties have been seconded to work from home and so these poor people are stuck at home 24 by 7 in front of a laptop or a computer seven days a week because if they don't have hobbies they don't leave the house and they don't get that human interaction it is borderline dangerous would not yeah, recommend no,
1: <laughs> abso- absolutely uh, and it's also good to hear that you, you've found that balance in your schedules to do something together right like i think this is the other thing that seems to be another thing i see especially in some of the other surgeons i work with where they become so obsessed with work that they don't actually spend quality time with their partner. Yeah. Um, so it's good to see that you guys have found like a common ground i think uh chandra you had a question or something oh no that
0: was on previous point all good um but in terms of that so. And did, how did you actually come to that? Was that a conscious decision, or because it seems like it's not a conscious decision always?
2: Uh, to to come to, to actually that make that kind time. of yeah it it's was there been, something
0: to help sort of you know prompt that
2: yeah so it's been a it's been an internal battle for quite some time because when you when you're back in training. There are there are outside factors that make you feel judged that maybe you shouldn't be doing the hobby that you love and are passionate about. And then so when you are out doing those things, there is an element of guilt associated with it. So, for example, when I was studying for my final exams, I could only concentrate studying in front of exam material for two hours at a time before it was useless. So if I maintain studying for three, four hours in a row, pretty much the third and the fourth hour was completely useless. So I said to myself, after two hours of absolute solid, non-disruptive studying, I'm going to go out and have a coffee. Or if it was nighttime, I'm going to go out and have a dance. And I had to learn that I I had to ignore those judgmental comments or I had to just not tell people that I'm dancing in order to enjoy myself and actually have that stress-free time. Now, when baby came along... Without me realising it, the same thing happened again because then it wasn't about studying, it was about motherhood and actually looking after a kid. Am I allowed to actually leave my kid alone with my husband and go out and enjoy myself and not feel guilty about it? And you know what, the first few times it was impossible because no matter how, how much you try to persuade yourself that you are allowed time off to yourself, there was still a moment of, oh God, I'm leaving my child at home by herself. What have I done? And it was a journey to get from that point to a point now where I'm like, you know what, for my mental health, which is beneficial to my child's health in small, reserved moderate doses this is perfectly okay in fact it's really good for me and between hubby and i we've had to learn that because it hasn't been an easy thing to sort out in in each person's individual heads and then talk it over to work out a schedule it's been it's been
1: tough i think this is something very common uh, that I was it's i think the tim ferris podcast discussed this briefly which is If you're kind of like that driven individual, it's almost like it doesn't matter. Like, if you're asked to, I don't know, do a presentation, you can probably do a job that's 90 to 95% better in an hour, but you almost feel like it has to be difficult. So you go to the point where it is difficult. It might be like a 0.1% incremental benefit, but you feel like your job is to get to that point. So you artificially make it harder on yourself like it's like yes. what you're saying if you analyze and it's like two hours is your load and it's probably going to get you to pass through the exam you feel like no it has to be four hours right like yep. you, you're going to be absolutely fine uh, and so this interesting question that the, he proposed asking is like what does it look like if it was easy like as in what would finishing an exam look like if it meant it was just an easy part of your life, like you just were gonna, it's like saying, you know, how does uh, driving a car look like if it was easy? It is, right? You don't even think about it. Uh, but there was a process along the way. But I find it interesting that I'm pretty sure all of us, to an extent, have had this because I had to do a very similar thing where studying for the exams. I, I for the last one, I knew I had one exam left in me, so I kind of was like, all right, all I'm going to do is study as much as I can, saturate to the point of I can't. I'm going to ignore everything else, but literally if i had failed i don't think i'd be underneath this right now like i genuinely was gonna go do some other stuff but along the way the opportunity came up to go to antarctica so um, yeah. once before uh the exam Chandra and i went to antarctica but it was the exact same sort of thing in my head anyway yeah. of like if i fail am i going to blame this but it was also like yeah. once in a lifetime yeah. opportunity That's uh, right. yeah yeah um, yeah yeah we might go on to uh, more random, random questions at the moment. Here you go, lovely harp sounds. Random interlude. <laughs> um, just because we've got this um, slightly interesting theme this year for Randint, which is that we've had a listener ring through and ask us to help them find a life partner, which is not where we thought Randint was ever going to be. Yep. Right? Um, But it is random. Yeah, so we're like, okay, if we can turn it into a podcast segment, screw it, we'll do it. Um, So we've been asking, where did you meet your partner? Like, where did you meet Hubby? Any tips for our listener?
2: Just about to say the best place to meet, no. um, Hubby and I actually met in the city doing street Latin, salsa and bachata. Uh, It was around the same time where I had a break in my dance career and I was in between dance partners. And like I explained to you earlier on in this show, um, I enjoyed dancing in a partnership because it requires a different kind of teamwork in order to achieve the same goal. And so I wanted to take a break from ballroom because – it is physically and mentally exhausting to try and find a dance partner when there is no no boys available. So I jumped across to salsa and bachata. And the reason why I jumped across to salsa and bachata was because I started getting all these pop-ups on my Facebook feed about salsa events and bachata events in the city. Um, back then there was, and still is, a uh, company called the Salsa Foundation that's run Just by- Just checking, is bachata a, a style of dancing? Yeah, so it's a style of street Latin, just like salsa. Oh, okay. is a style of street Latin. And they have regular events in the city. Um, so there's like bachata connection and bachata events and TSF. Like the also foundation of... Um, events all the time in the city on on like a daily evening basis like monday through to sunday you can just book it up on facebook there will be spots available and you don't have to turn up with a partner you can just turn up by yourself they have beginner classes intermediate and advanced classes running all the time there will be coming there will be classes coming out of your ears if you actually look hard enough um and then they run a social every evening after those classes where you get to mingle with people and meet people and that's how adam and i met at one of those events
1: Wow! Well, there you go. Uh, I mean, our listeners trying ask a random podcast, so maybe they can go to this event.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, random podcast is giving them good advice, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So we've got a few other random kind of questions to ask you about. Um, I was going to ask your favorite city that you've been to, but what about your favorite city you've been dancing? In?
2: Well, that's a little bit one sided because I actually went to Spain, Barcelona, for a conference some years ago. And but charter is really hot in Europe, in Spain especially. So I actually went there and I did a few classes there. It wasn't all that different from Melbourne, except they just tried talking to me in Spanish and then realizing I don't speak a single word of Spanish apart from Hundo Space. <laughs> and um that was lovely. Yeah, that's the best. That's the best uh, place I've danced in.
1: And would you say that it was a good place minus the dancing? Like, what's your favorite place without the dancing involved? Then,
2: okay, my favorite place in the whole world without the dancing has to be the Maldives because that that is just the best diving experience, the, the best non diving experience? experience, and the, the manta ray and the sharks and all of that. And that was lovely. I actually took a, I took like a two weeks holiday. Just by myself, um, and I went on a liverboard experience for seven nights um, by myself. Because you're a
0: boss,
2: <laughs> I'm a boss. Oh, well. Yeah, <laughs> and I would kill to do that again.
0: Now, well, fair fair enough. Enough. What sort of was it? Sorry, what sort of boat was it?
2: Um, it was a three level boat with a sun deck on the top. And a spa deck in the centre and living quarters down the bottom with a dining hall. Um, and it serviced about 20 people on board. And they split up into groups of four with a dive guide um, allocated to each group. And they were all locals and they knew all the dive sites really well, it was run very safely. It was called, what was it called? I can't remember what it's called. I have to look up Ch- again. Chandra's
1: going to be sailing for all of next year, so th- you got to up your game, man. This is what you're going to have to compete <laughs> with. <laughs> this sounds like uh, a more convenient way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, random other question is like: Do you have a movie, a piece of art, a story, or something that you saw that, uh, for whatever reason? you can't stop thinking about. It. And it does, I don't mean it as in like, what's your favorite piece of art? I mean, like something that keeps on coming up to you again and again over the course of, the, of time. Like for me personally, um, the example would be, there's an anime called Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, Japanese animation, big robots fighting aliens, right? And for me, the reason it keeps on coming up is that that was my introduction to like psychology right so i find elements of the bits that i like i just went hard into this right and whilst it's my favorite anime i just find that it comes up over and over again like i was literally listening to something else um some obscure topic on like i think it's like innovation and some little phrase caught my eye and it just made me come back to that anime uh is there anything like that that you
2: uh, I guess there is. It sounds like a bit of a joke, though, and I'm certainly not proud of it, but I'm happy to share it. Yeah. Um, so as as you both know, I used to be a bit of a closet gamer, computer gamer back in my days, mm. no longer. We are
1: trying to encourage this behaviour currently. <laughs>
2: yep, and I'm madly fighting it, but, yeah, as we know. So I used to play World of Warcraft, as some of you might know. So it was pretty unhealthy back then. Like imagine the South Park episode of World of Warcraft where you had, you know, um, I don't know, Cartman sort of hidden in the basement with like acne growing out in the skin and just eating pizza for dinner most nights and just refusing to come out of his room. Yeah, it was sort of like Are you talking about heaven? (laughs) (laughs) So every now and again I would I would sort of get these flashbacks of what life used to be when I used to be a gamer. And recently no joke, I actually was driving in the middle of the Melbourne CBD and a tram went right past my car and it said, World of Warcraft, Burning Crusade, coming soon. Yep. And I thought, this has got to be a really old tram, but no. it wasn't because it said 2022. And I was like,
1: They're, they're re-releasing oh.
2: it. Oh. <laughs> Gee so i'd probably say that that's the thing that keeps bouncing back at me but i'm resisting every time so far we'll see how far we get
1: don't resist to give it's in it's hard to
2: game hard to game with a with a career and dancing in a 15 month old so yes Maybe in that, that case has I'm to I'm
0: be sh- your <laughs> next artistic <mistake>. creating <laughs> uh, creating skins in the world of warcraft <laughs> oh gosh creator.
2: yes mm. there you go <laughs> yeah so I guess, I guess my boss was right back then. Something has to give and maybe it's my game in career. No, it should be
1: adulting. Adulting has to give.
2: <laughs>
1: um, that's it from my sort of questions. Anything that you'd like to add, Chandra? I think that's the main things I wanted to chat about. Was this conversation remotely what you thought it was going to be?
2: Yeah, it was actually. It was pretty damn yeah. close. And um, you guys have made it very comfortable for me to talk. So you guys have done a great job. Thank you for having me.
1: No, no. Thanks for uh, agreeing to a random podcast with us. No worries. Um, <laughs> if, is there any sort of, if this is kind of like, you know, general, it doesn't have to be to any specific thing. If you had to think of one, not quite trite, it's not the right word, but one piece of general life of advice that, you think is uh, not it is atypical, like as in it's not what you usually hear, like get up and brush your teeth in the morning and follow routines and habits, right? Is there something unusual that has kind of disproportionately helped you?
2: Oh yeah. I have just the right one for you. Oh, perfect. If something if something keeps coming back at you over and over and over again, don't ignore it. Chances are you haven't learned your lesson yet. So I'm talking if something keeps coming back to bite you in the bum over and over again and the same thing just keeps going wrong every time you try it, it just goes wrong. It keeps trying it, it goes wrong. It probably means that either it's not the right thing for you or two, more importantly, that you haven't learnt your lesson.
1: Do you have, and you don't have to answer it, do you have like an example-ish thing to Mm. kind of go with that?
2: Yeah, I do actually, it's quite funny. So I had a fairly dysfunctional relationship once upon a time Um, and I remembered, I remembered calling up one of my best mates and I I basically said to her that I was going to end it and then I didn't end it. And this process repeated itself maybe over the course of about four years before I knew it. And the last thing that really, um, that, that she said to me actually was, um, sorry let me take a step back so every time something goes wrong with the relationship I get pretty upset and then I'd move on and then we would be okay for a while and then something would go wrong again and then so on and so forth so after we kind of broke up properly we were still struggling with the process of having broken up with each other and we were still attempting to see each other and it just wasn't really working but then one particular night I went and had dinner with him somewhere and then i drove him home and then when i tried to reverse out of the driveway my car it was a rainy night i actually got my car bogged. Okay. <laughs> so called my friend and i said you won't believe what the hell just happened and I, my car's bogged and so she said to me marion you know you just got to stop this and i go i don't understand why does it just why does it go shit every time like that like i don't get it um it just keeps coming back and coming back and haunting me every time, you know. And she goes, "Yeah, well, that's because you haven't learnt your lesson yet." And I said to her, "Well, what lesson is that supposed to be?" And she goes, "Self-respect." So,
1: fair enough. I
2: I take cool. that I take that <laughs> advice quite seriously these days. So it doesn't necessarily have to be as serious as relationship, but it can be a career pathway. So, for example, I, I, I'm I'm believe it or not. Even though I'm a surgeon and I like self-improvement and all that kind of jazz, I'm quite a spiritual individual. So I like to believe that there is a bit of spiritual powers to our world that guides us down a certain path. Kind of a thing right without going into specifics so if you're trying to do something over and over again and it's not quite working ask yourself if there is something that you have a life lesson that you haven't quite learned yet and generally speaking you'll be able to answer that question and find out what it is before you actually go ahead and make your decision
1: wow well wasn't expecting that sort of an answer Thanks so uh <laughs> in right there <laughs> Alrighty. Well, with that, I believe we shall wrap up this well, the first interview episode for season two with Marion. Uh, did you want us to link to your social media profiles and all that? If so. Yeah, sure. Yeah? Sure. Go okay. Yeah. We'll put it into the show notes, et cetera. But I actually can't remember that the is it just Dr. Marion Chan as your yeah. Instagram? Yeah. Um, And we'll link to the websites and all that stuff below. Uh, Below being the descriptions or wherever you're seeing this. And if you're Um, on YouTube, click here. Oh, yeah, that card thing that I haven't used in ages. It'll be there somewhere. Uh, So, again, thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to like and subscribe and all that jazz, and don't turn on notifications. And we're really bad at doing the promotion stuff. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't like doing that little spiel. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks again, Maz. Thank you. As you might have seen on the Dota chat, like half the Dota games are now Chandra sitting in his Tesla playing. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's also- <laughs> if you have a look at the chat, it's like. <laughs> oh my god. That's I've been back there. And right Holy now. Holy Christ! Where, I am.
2: <laughs> where do you even get a place to put your freaking mouse?
0: On well, the little... Actually, the perfect thing is I sit in that chair and yeah. then right there, there's a mouse pad.
2: Oh, <laughs> wow.
1: See, this okay. is why you band need band. a Tesla so you can get away from the fam <laughs> and just be in your little isolated bubble.
2: Yep. Tuan took me for a spin in his recently, by the way. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, it was good. It was good. It was nice. But I particularly like the color of his Tesla too. I don't even the know blue. what to call it.
1: <laughs> is it blue? It's
2: sort of like green, but blue, but it's green.